is the Saturday Supplement. I'm Frank Lewis. Welcome to... In fact, it's it's just around sunrise on Saturday the 13th of May. Welcome to our two weeks of discovery of the stories and experiences of the Shetland Islands. A pair of, of great skewer called every morning for breakfast... A sandstorm uncovered a place where people have lived for over 4,000 years. The story of the Shetland bus that shortened the Second World War. Fiddle music that was stolen from the trows. The Shetland mandolin band played the music of Padig O'Keefe. The Shetland or Northern Isles, a subarctic archipelago in Scotland between uh, Orkney, the Faroe Islands and Norway. They form part of the border between the Atlantic Ocean to the west and the North Sea to the east, in all some 70 miles long, enclosed by a a coastline of 900 miles. Nowhere is more than three miles from the sea, and very few places are out of sight of the sea. Made up of of about 100 islands, 16 inhabited by 23,000 people, it's a place of very bare land, uh, home to up to a million birds, our visit to Shetland was made possible by our family, by, by Logan Eyre, who flew us from Dublin to Aberdeen and on to Shetland. Promote Shetland found us a, a wonderfully modernised crofter's cottage to stay in. Shetland.org slash sign up for their monthly newsletter. Promote Shetland with Shetland Immunity suggested where to go and who to talk to. We recorded today's programme from, from April the 30th to May the 13th. Your comments, which we'll come back to in future programmes, write Frank Lewis, Mangerton Road, Muckrus, Killarney. Email franklewismangerton at gmail.com. Text 083-300-3300 or phone 066-7123666. But let's get started. On Wednesday, May the 10th, we're on the uninhabited island of Noss, a national nature reserve with one of the most important seabird colonies in Scotland. In the summer months, the towering 180-metre sea cliffs are alive with breeding birds, especially gannets, gillibots and fulmers. They seem to occupy every available nook on the cliffs, a breeding bird population of up to 80,000. I'm joined by the two wardens looking after NOS, Jennifer Clark and Sally Ray. And I should say, we've just finished four hours walking around the island and the weather has been good, thank God. Tell me about Bill and Bob. Two very friendly bonksies. The same pair have been coming to outside the house for 18 years. Um, Would eat cashew nuts from our hands. They would stand at the door and call at us to come out the house in the morning. Um, Sometimes they would chase us in the boat. Um, And it was... They, they felt like pets really there was there was a real interaction between us and them and sometimes we would just be sat outside the house and they would just sit with us um, but sadly they died of bird flu last year and we lost them Bonksies are great skewers um, and Nos well it did have the fifth largest um, great skewer colony in the world not sure whether that's still the case or not unfortunately because of bird flu but yeah they're these big beautiful brown birds and um, they're predators scavengers and they make the most amazing sounds and when their population was at its height they'd be all over the island and you could constantly hear them calling they're known as the pirates of the sea which yeah. i think is a great name for them they, they're 
nobody really likes them in Shetland because they dive bomb you and attack you because they're very protective of their young. So if you walk through a Bonksy colony, you have lots of birds flying at your face, so they're not very popular, but I just love their big characters and how fantastic parents they are and to be able to have two friendly ones, Bill and Bob, it was quite special and unique. But your time on NAS... I think it's one of the most magical places there is, not just in the UK, but the world. The seabird cliffs are probably the most impressionable thing. The The magic of NOS is that when you come here, you don't see the cliffs at first in the way they slowly reveal themselves and get bigger and bigger and expose thousands of nesting seabirds and you're not hit with the sight and the sound and the smell of them until you get there. I think that's the real magic of NOS. Sally... When I first started, I think we were maybe a week into the season and I'd been enjoying all the seabirds and everything, but we were right at the top of the cliffs. Jen calls me from below to tell me that there were orcas right below us and I absolutely lost it. I can't repeat what I said. That was amazing. I'd never seen them before. How rare are they? They're seen quite regularly around Shetland. NAS was closed early last summer because of the threat of avian flu that had already affected bonxies and gannets on the island. Jen, is avian flu still a threat? The birds have only just started returning, the bonxies especially. So we're unsure at the moment if it's still in the colony or not, but we're keeping our eyes out for any signs of it, any signs of sick birds or dead birds. But at the moment, we haven't found any dead or sick birds a winter trip to Nass in mid-February this year uh, came across a dead great black-backed gull which had a Norwegian ring on its leg. Ewan and I came over on a rare winter trip to Nass and as we were approaching the first part of the cliffs we found a dead gull. We sent the details of the ring away and were shocked to find out it was the third oldest bird on record, the only other two that that beat it were two birds that had been found in Finland. So yeah, quite remarkable. You see gulls around the island all the time and you don't really stop to think just how old they might be or to think that they are older than you are and been around longer than you have. So it was really quite incredible to for that information to be revealed from the, the leg ring. The Pacific Swift that arrived on the 21st of June last year. It had been down at Sumberhead two days before where it was first seen and... Jen even said it's going to turn up it's going to turn up at the Noob because that's where Swifts like to turn up and yeah I was I was on my way up there when we got a call from one of the guys on the boats to tell me um, that it was there so proceeded to make my quickest walk up to the to the top of the island spend some time with it and then speed back down so that Jen and Ewan could go up and get to admire it yeah. but yeah that was really special Sally lots of chicks from early June as you reported on the 8th of June last year are, are numbers steady are, how are numbers on the island? As Jen mentioned, the bonksies are down, so it won't be until we start to do our monitoring that we we find out how many are back and have nests. And then in terms of like the gannets, uh, that we did lose some last year, so far uh, the plots that we monitored don't look too bad. Still a bit down from what they would usually be, but not awfully hit. So it's it looks promising now for the gannets at least. Um, yeah, and other birds seem just perfectly normal. You have to keep your wits about you here. I have a gannet monitoring plot where I sit on the edge of the cliffs and monitor a section of the 
nesting gannets. But where I sit happens to be very close to some puffin burrows. And when I'm sitting monitoring gannets, I tend to leave a pile of pens next to me. And whilst I had my back turned, I could hear a, a clattering behind me. And I turned round to see a puffin had picked up one of my pens and had ran off along the cliff edge with it and had attempted to take it down its burrow and quickly realised that it couldn't fit it in its burrow so it just dropped it on the side of the cliff and I had to go and tentatively retrieve it without falling off the cliff myself. The wall, Sally, I mean, right around the island Mm -hmm. there is the remains... The cliff dike was built all around the highest points of the cliff of the island um, and it took two men nine years to build. Um, and For what? It was to stop the Shetland ponies from falling off the uh, edge of the cliffs. But why were Shetland ponies so important here, Jim? They were bred as pit ponies to go down the mines when it was made illegal to send children down the mines. So it was a uh, Shetland stud farm that was uh, set up by the Marquis of Londonderry in 1870. And there was a notorious Shetland pony named Jack of Noss who sired 286 Shetland ponies. And he is responsible for all Shetland ponies because every Shetland pony in the world can now trace their ancestry back to Jack of Noss. Of Noss, so they were actually developed, the first Shetland pony was developed? The first stud farm, Shetland pony stud farm was on Noss. And we have a pony pond. Uh, with pointy corners as apparently Shetland ponies are very good at climbing out the corners of buildings and it's one of only four buildings in Shetland, well in the world, that are designed specifically that way for Shetland ponies. You're both here for six months. Do you get on with one another? (laughs) We'd actually get on incredibly well (laughs) and we don't really ever argue and if we do it's over very quickly. I think to be able to do this job you have to get on very well with the other person because it's just the two of you you're away from your friends and family and it's a very small house that we live in so we do get on very well and before we started this season we went on holiday to Italy together that's how well we got on and you are the only people living on the island just the two of us nobody else just us and the sheep what do you okay you work you were saying to me from nine to five what do you do for the other nine to five is how many hours of the day does that leave especially when we get into the summer it's light almost all day so sometimes we do monitoring work in the mornings and in the evenings so this Um, is before nine and after five well we take advantage of any good weather opportunities if we need to get monitoring in and then in our downtime we do like to walk around the island because it is lovely and just chill and watch the sunset um, and admire all the birds Um, and then when the weather's not so nice uh, we've got Wi-Fi, so we sometimes like to stick Netflix on <laughs> and get cosy yeah. in the living room. Yeah. Jen, I mean, this is your sixth or seventh year here, you were it's saying? My, my first year was 2018 and have been on here every year, apart from 2020, when I couldn't get here, so spent the season on the Isle of May instead. My sixth season on NOS. Do you have a particular... I mean, are you both readers or do you... Uh, um, do you write or, or do I you don't, play music? Or? Uh, I do read a lot. I love reading. I do play music, but I don't have a guitar with me. I do a lot of yoga, running, walking, birding. Our most recent interest is hula hooping. We both love being outside. We love nature, so... And like Sally says, it doesn't get dark until very late here, so we spend a lot of our time outside watching nature, looking for orca, watching birds, playing in rock pools. We go swimming in the sea quite a lot. We go snorkelling. The island must have thousands of rabbits. I mean, there are rabbits everywhere. There are a lot of rabbits here. They weren't originally on here. They were brought on at some point um, by humans for whatever reason, pets 
to eat. I'm not sure. You were saying, Jen, that sometimes they develop a a diet need so that they're normally vegetarian. Yeah, on other islands, they can develop a calcium deficiency, which will cause them to eat eggs or chicks. It's not an issue we've ever had on NOS, but I know other um, seabird islands have, have seen that happen. Do you have a particular ambition, something you would particularly like to experience or see or do on us? I'm going to go back and talk about the orca again. I would love to see them coming through NOS Sound. Jen? I would love to find a bird on NOS that's the first for the whole of the UK, oh. not not just Shetland. Yeah, yeah. My ambition that I've been saying for a long time is I want to run round the whole perimeter of NOS. Thank you both for talking to me. That was Sally Ray and Jennifer Clark. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry. On the Shetland Islands, on... By far the biggest and most populated island. We're on mainland and it's Tuesday, the 2nd of May. I'm joined by Lucy Morris, archaeologist in charge of the Historic Environment Scotland, here at Jarlsworth, the preserved ruins of a wheelhouse and broch or tower, described as one of the most remarkable archaeological sites ever excavated in the British Isles. The thing about Jarlshof is we've, it's not just one time period we've got here. We've got all the way back for 4,000 years and then we've got almost continuous settlement from then till now. The Neolithic we start in, so it's the first farmers in Shetland. They're bringing new technologies and they're bringing cattle. They're the first people here. They're living in oval houses, choosing this location because the geology is better for farming here. We've just walked through the site. I noticed the number of quern stones. Almost every house did their own grinding of the corn or whatever. The querns we've got here, they're called saddle querns. So it's a, a large rock with a smaller rock in it. And over the years and time of grinding corn or grain or whatever, it grinds down the middle rock so it looks like a bowl almost. Mm. The saddle querns uh, survive here even after the newer rotary querns the round querns you're used to seeing come so we we almost think there's something going on here that they're keeping them for some reason. Maybe maybe it's their family quern or there's an ancestry or something to do with it mm. but they seem to stay here. We have 21 on site and more dotted about the place and some in museums. So. so you've got the several buildings from that early Neolithic period. Where do we go from there? So after the Neolithic um, we have a little bit of a jump in time and we end up in the Bronze Age. So we're looking about 2,000 years ago, maybe a bit earlier than that and the m- remarkable thing here is we have a Bronze Age smithy so they're making bronze here or they're at least burning old bronze down and making new new items but the thing about bronze is you need tin and we are very far from any tin, tin reserves it's really in the Cornwall so the Cornish Cornwall, yeah. tin was being brought up here yeah so either we're not quite sure if it's the tin itself was being brought up here or if people had direct contact with Cornwall it's probably more they traded up through the British Isles all the way to 
Shetland. But it shows we weren't as isolated as we think. Lucy, Yardstaff is a very extensive site, but, but it was lost. All that remained was the last set of buildings, which was a big laird's house from the 16th century. All this archaeological and Bronze Age and Neolithic stuff was hidden underneath sand and soil. It was uncovered in 1897 by a severe storm, and it took down the sand dunes at the side of the site. The laird at the time, the landowner, Bruce, noticed some underneath the ruins of the laird's house, some stone walls, and he thought this was maybe the basement, but he had some learned friends up with him, and they said, no, 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 there's something much more serious going on here. They started digging, and they really didn't stop digging until the middle of the 1950s. There's so much here, and we haven't reconstructed anything, which is the remarkable thing. Go back to the periods. There was the Bronze Age with the tin from Cornwall. We then really rapidly move to the early Iron Age where we see the evolution of the oval and round houses become more round what we see today. And then we move on to the really to the later of the Iron Age and we see the broths appear and these big stone towers that appear in Shetland. There's 120 of them, supposedly, in Shetland, mostly in ruins, but we have half a broch that's left here. They're amazing structures, aren't yes, they? Yes, absolutely. So they're really tall structures, all maybe all the way up to the... Um, could almost be up to 13 metres tall. Mm-hmm. Double-walled structures with a staircase all the way up to the top. Archaeologists debate fiercely about the use of them. Some think, um, as they were towers, they were for defence. Others think they were just a status home. They were these big homes that could show off wealth and everything else. Mm. And what period are we talking about there? 300 BC-ish, kind of uh-huh. that kind of area, up to about 100, B- 100 AD. Mm. And what so comes after that? After that, we get the wheelhouses. We're in one of them now. It's tall round houses that have alcoves in them. They reuse a lot of the stone from the Brock period and they start to build these alcoved wheelhouses. This one we're standing in is the best preserved in Scotland. You generally really only find wheelhouses in the North Atlantic. You can almost imagine living in this one. Some soft furnishings and a fire. It'd be yeah. really very cosy. Shetland is always windy, so the fact even now we can stand and have this conversation when in quite, the cam. Quite breezy outside. Yeah, absolutely. And an airport across the way. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's been quite quiet in here, yeah, actually. Yeah. But the little alcoves, so it's called a wheelhouse because we have these walls that jut into the middle, like the spokes of a wheel, yeah. if you were looking from there. And these little alcoves would have provided bits that you could sleep in or cook in or just... So you reckon it was one family lived here? Extended families. It would have been grannies and uncles and aunties. They'd all been living in together because mm-hmm. it was made more sense to yeah. build one big house then. Yeah. And after this... We come to the Pictish period, so this is the Celtic tribes of Scotland, just before the Vikings. Um, The Picts here, we don't do much about the archaeology here because immediately after we get the Vikings and they they have built on top of the Picts and the archaeology, to get to the Picts we'd have to remove all the Viking longhouses that remain here and the archaeologist at the time was more interested in the Vikings, I think. Of course, there is a huge Viking connection with... I mean, here you're almost equidistant from Norway and from Scotland. Absolutely, and our closest train station is in Bergen from Shetland Isles at the moment. And a lot of Shetlanders feel uh, not quite Scottish and not quite Scandinavian. We're in this weird mix in the middle. We have an old dialect that has Scots and Norse words in it. So we still really hold to the Vikings, to the Viking period. We kinda, it's uh, a big part of our heritage. The, the Norwegians actually owned it and ruled it for quite a long period. Yeah, so after the Vikings settled here in the 800 AD, we were part of the territory of Norway. We were under the rule of the kings of Norway and paid taxes in Norway and under the church in Bergen. And then 
that all dissolved when Orkney and Shetland were given to Scotland as part of the dowry. So we ended up becoming So kind of James of Scotland yeah. married a Norwegian Yeah, it was a Norwegian princess. princess. So when that marriage happened, obviously the people in Shetland were culturally, linguistically... Norwegian, they were Scandinavians. So we then see, and we, it's visible at Jarls off with the Laird's house, but we see the rule of the Scottish Jarls come here. And they're really ruling over Scandinavian people. So quite often the Jarls are seen in quite good light in Scottish history, but for Shetlanders, they're actually the villains of war history because they're importing this new language, new culture on. Norse people, really. So does Shetland really see itself as the independent republic of Shetland? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Uh, some people will argue that we are our own thing. Other people are saying, no, we are part of Scotland. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a really difficult one. It's nationality and everything is hard. Mm. A lot of people would say they were Shetlanders before they were anything else. <laughs> and the, the Laird's house that you were talking about, that mm-hmm. brings us up to, what, the 1600s? Yes, yes, absolutely. Patrick Stewart and Robert Stewart, uh, father and son, who come and they rule over the islands. They're known very as cruel landlords. very cruel landlords. They tax Shetland within an inch of, inch of its life. They're really horrible to everyone. They build these huge houses, not just here, but in Orkney and, Cal- and palaces, and really just show off their wealth, which they're taken from the local people. The local people get very mad, obviously. And also, they are not putting this money over to the Crown, so the Crown also get very mad. So they end up having both sides fighting against them to the point where the Scottish Crown actually beheads them because they're just not doing what they want. The site is open all year. We have an audio tour that uh, is self-led, but it's spoken by a Shetland lady. It gives a good atmosphere when you're in each building because we jump so quickly in time yeah. between different places. It keeps you orientated. Lucy Morris, archaeologist and manager of Historic Environment Scotland's site here at Yarlshof. Thanks indeed for talking to us. Thank you very much and I hope you come again. Indeed, we will. <laughs> and now a piece of music from Haltadans. Morris, what's it going to be? Well, this one is a tune called Hyogra Vilta and it's a Fettler tune, a Fettler reel. The fiddler that played this tune was a man called David Hart and he was a, a fisherman in the 19th century off to the half fishing and uh, he was also a famous fiddler and he was in the boat he was the towsman that hoisted the sail lowered the sail in the boat it was a real skilled job but he was his nickname was Hyogravilta after the farm he lived so this is his surreal <laughs>
Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry. Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly. Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. Shetland Islands on Thursday, May the 4th. Today's programme is recorded over the first two weeks in May. On future programmes, we'll use your story or comment on Shetland or, or any good story on your place. Text 083 300 3300 or phone 066 7123 We're now in Scalloway on Prince Olaf Slipway. Scalloway is a village of approximately 1,300 residents on the west-central mainland of Shetland, part of the main island in this Shetland group. Once the ancient capital of Shetland, the village is today a modern progressive community centred around the the sheltered, busy commercial harbour that plays host to traditional fishing vessels, modern aquaculture services and some of the most modern shipping in the oil industry working west of Shetland. In Scalloway, the story of the past is still very well remembered, particularly the memory of the Second World War. I'm joined by local historian and journalist Mark Burgess. Mark, your late father founded the Shetland Bus Friendship Society to raise the memorial and the Scalloway Museum. I was an active volunteer in the community and was on the community council at that time. And just through a first-hand knowledge of the history of the Shetland Bus in Scalloway, he and others thought that it was probably time to better recognise that part of Scalloway's history because in wartime it was all top secret clandestine operation though there was many people here taking part in it it was still a secret and it remained a a secret the Shetland bus took place in in two main parts The, the earliest operation from 1941 to 1942 was small fishing boats with civilian crews who travelled between here and coastal Norway in the dark of night in the worst of weather and through the winter to avoid detection making it a, a, a double peril, double jeopardy if they went in better conditions they're more inclined to be caught and dealt with with all due severity in 1942 the operation started in the north of the mainland at a place called Luna and that was when it was absolutely a secret but it was found to be not a ideal base because there was very little facilities there and quite importantly there was nowhere for the crews to socialise or relax when they were ashore men doing an extremely difficult heroic job and coming ashore to nothing so Jack Moore who ran the shipyard here in Scalway was approached by the Special Operations Executive about basing the operation here and carrying out the maintenance and repair on the, on the vessels that moved here in 1942 and this slipway behind us was built for the year after that there were some significant losses 44 men, all civilians were killed in their service to the, the Shetland bus operation and this was noticed on a global stage and the US Navy opted to donate three, for the time, high-tech, high-speed sub-chaser vessels to the Shetland bus operation so that the crossings could be made more quickly and with uh, better defence. And and so those vessels arrived in in, in 1943 and from that day on there wasn't another loss in the whole operation. That continued right until the end of the war and still crewed by civilian crews. 
So had a very unique situation here where you had military vessels being crewed and skippered by civilians. Yeah. The loss of 43, 44 men on the Bilia, or Bilia, the worst tragedy. Then the brass holes, the crew of eight, one shot and killed, the rest captured, tortured and executed. One escaped, Agent Jan Balstrud, 130 kilometres, 80 miles over fjord and Arctic mountains, wounded, frostbitten, snow-blinded, hurled 90 metres 300 feet in an avalanche buried alive for five days cocooned for four weeks in a snowdrift, crippled often helpless and mostly alone he amputated most of his toes with his penknife to prevent the spread of gangrene finally with an, an enemy ski patrol in hot pursuit he crossed the Swedish border on a, a lap sledge drawn by reindeer in Sweden Jan Lee unconscious for a week and spent two months in bed. He had lost seven toes and partly lost two others. Mark, the World War Two here. There was around 20,000 soldiers garrisoned here during the war, so it effectively doubled the population. There were nissen huts everywhere as, as temporary accommodation. But so much of it was high impact from low numbers. The shuttle bus operation here in Scalway was a, for instance... The operation that was running from here to coastal Norway was being defended by 300,000 Germans defending the coast. There was about 350,000 Germans in Norway. 300,000 of them were defending the coast. And all that they were defending against was a small operation based here in Scalway with a few resistance operations, operatives and commandos yeah. going in and out of the country. It's extraordinary. And, and if those 300,000 men had been deployed somewhere else in the war, things could have taken an entirely different path. <laughs> I was looking at the memorial outside the town hall in Derrick. Hundreds from the islands killed in the First World War, dozens in World War Two. The crucial role that Shetlanders played in particularly the First World War and the Second World War was that Shetland has such a, a, a rich and full maritime history that so many of them were involved in the, in the, either in the Navy or mostly in the Merchant Navy. A, an awful lot of men from, from here. Huge percentage of the population. And as they say, head for head of a population... The losses to Shetland in the First World War were as significant as anywhere in Europe because all the adult men of, of seafaring ability went to sea. The whole Norwegian Viking influence here is normal. All of the place names are Viking-based. I read somewhere that 60% of the population of Shetland descended from Norwegian Vikings. Shetland has a fire festival season every winter. They have hundreds of people in fancy dress carrying flaming torches behind a Viking longship that they call a galley, which gets paraded around the streets of the town and then burnt. The main squad are in a Viking costume, a lot of it handcrafted, helmets and axes and pewter work, chain mail. Every rural area in, in Shetland has its own fire festival throughout the whole islands, so there's one every weekend from the first weekend in, in January to the middle of March. The museum was opened by the Norwegian Prime Minister, the memorial was unveiled by uh, a Norwegian princess, the pier here again bearing the names. Does Norway financially support what goes on here in Shetland? Through the tourist industry, there's a, a fairly healthy relationship between here and Norway. But again, coming back to the location where we're at uh, today, as a, a fine example, the Prince Olaf Slipway has become somewhat derelict. It's not a, in use anymore. But 
the combination of coastal communities in, in Norway last year made a donation of, of half the cost of refurbishing the slipweight. The other half isn't coming from the UK. It's coming from the fishing industry, the salmon industry here, and the, the local museum. It wasn't a princess that visited the memorial in 2007. It was the Queen of Norway. And, and at that time, there was a, a Queen's representative there, you know, like a Lord Lieutenant, as they call it, who's somebody, it's just a titular dignitary. So the, the highest-ranking UK national standing next to the Queen of Norway when she uh, visited the memorial and officially un un unveiled it in 2007 was a local councillor. There was nobody here from the British government. Mark Hodges, The Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry, brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly, Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee. On the Shetland Islands, on Saturday, May the 6th, after travelling from Shetland's mainland island by ferry to the island of Yell, driven 17 miles across Yell, and again by ferry, now we're on the island of Fettler, known as the Garden of Shetland, the greenest of the islands. Historically, many crops were grown on the island, particularly here, particularly beer. But today, most of the land is used for grazing sheep and cattle. At home to a, a diverse range of wildlife, two-thirds of the island is designated as a, as a site of special scientific interest, a special area of conservation, or as an RSPB reserve. We were to be at the four to 5,000-year-old Haltadan's stone circle of 38 stones with two stones in the centre. Guided by the leader of Haltadan's, the music group named after the stone circle, uh, Morris Henderson, and the other members of the group who are joining us here. Morris is on fiddle. Ella Robertson is on fiddle as well. Uh, John Clark is on bass guitar. And Ewan Thompson is on acoustic guitar. Morris, what are we going to play first? An old Fettler tune. We didn't quite make it to the hill to dance. It's blowing a, a bit of a storm. The stone circle is to do with the trows. The, the fairies. Yeah, the pretty folk that live in the hills. Yeah, <laughs> right. And they're very fond of the fiddle music as well. And there's many a fiddler that gets taken away by the trows. The trows, they've left a repertoire of tunes in Shetland. Um, various fiddlers have picked them up. This one, Winya Depler, comes from... Uh, down through the Lawrenson family. Now, Jimsy Lawrenson was a famous storyteller and the strongest man in Fettler, and he used to tell this story and sing the melody. His great-grandfather, Gibby, was in the old stone watermill, and he was the only man brave enough to go out there in the middle of the night and grind the corn, because the trows were so prolific coming up that burn. He was in this night, he had straw hollows around him, keeping warm, and the trows had borrowed the boat and rowed across the wicked grooting and they were going up the burn to a wedding party at Stackerberg. Now Gibby, he was wary of those trows because they can play terrible tricks on you, take away, steal your cattle, things like that. Mm. And he pretended to be asleep in the mill and the trows burst in and they were wondering what to do to the sleeper. Gibby he suddenly felt this wet cloths on his leg and it was a trowy woman who'd come in with a big bundle of washing from the burn and it was the hippings, the, like the nappies, the bairns' nappies. She laid this wet, soaking wet cloths on his leg to dry and then on the other leg as well. 
He was still trying to be pretend to be asleep in the trous. They seemed to be arguing amongst themselves and they, they were wanting to know what to do to the sleeper but the trowy woman was saying no he's doing a very fine job at drying my washing why don't you just play him a tune so the trows agreed they said well they had stolen the best tap puckles of us corn this year anyway and they would just play him this tune as they danced around inside the mill and played the tune over and over Gibby managed to it was, it was lodged in his head and when he got home he couldn't he didn't play the fiddle himself but he was a very good singer his son played the fiddle and picked up the tune so we're going to play that very melody and I, I believe it would have been around the early 1800s when this event happened Fishing is hugely important here in Shetland. The old whaling days. This is a tune called Willowfjord. I did a bit of research into this tune, trying to find where the place was, because it's a real popular tune throughout Shetland. And uh, going through the old log books of whaling ships, and they used to set off here. They would come up the coast of Britain, the sailing ships from, say, Whitby, Hull, Peterhead, Dundee, Aberdeen, and then they would stop in Shetland, pick up the crew were skilled, you see, sailors working with small boats, sailing like from the half fishing. And then they would set off a three week trip maybe to Greenland, West Greenland. When they arrived there the fiddlers there were a lot of fiddlers aboard and when the they met in with the locals there, then they would come off and join uh, aboard the ship, clear the decks and maybe dance ten or twelve hours solid tunes. And the, the locals up in Greenlanders they picked up the fiddle as well. And this is a tune said to come back from the Greenland days. So we bit of research, eventually tracked down whereabouts in Greenland, Willowfjord is, and it's now under the, the proper Greenlandic name of Sissy Mate, and it's the kind of most northerly ice-free port in the west of Greenland. So I did pay a visit there, and although they didn't know the actual melody, within a few bars of striking up the tune, they could dance to it. And the dance kind of had like a there was a man, two women, they would go around for eight, back for eight do a kind of figure of eight and while they did that a back step or a step dance and the sound of the feet was just very much like our own Shetland reel so there was definitely a connection there so we'll okay. play Willowfjord okay. three, four <laughs>
Haltedan is a group of some of Shetland's finest traditional folk musicians. Morris Henderson on fiddle, Ella Robertson on fiddle, John Clark on bass guitar and Ewan Thompson on acoustic guitar. Thank you all very much. Fantastic. Wonderful music. Uh, and now to play us out the 10 o'clock news from Haltedan's. Morris, what is it going to be this time? We're going to play a set of Shetland reels, uh, traditional tunes. The first one is called The Lasses in the Mill, The New Ground, and This Is No Me Ain House. <laughs> Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry Welcome back On the Shetland Islands
This programme was recorded over the first two weeks of May. On future programmes, we'll use your Shetland story, our comment, or any good story on your place. Write Frank Lewis, Mangerton Road, Muckris Killarney. Email franklewismangerton at gmail.com. Text 083-300-3300 or phone 66 on Wednesday May the 3rd on mainland by far the largest of the island at its most southerly point at Samburg Head Lighthouse it's a stunning day absolutely stunning huge ocean panorama way down as far as, as Fair Isle over 20 miles away the, the hills inland and just endless endless ocean and I, I'm joined from Shetland Amenity by Sandburg Head site manager Jane Outram <laughs> and to talk about nearby Old Skadness Broch and Iron Age Village regional archaeologist Dr Val Turner and if we spent a couple of hours with Val looking around Skatness and, and the work that goes on there and Jane has taken us on a tour of the different dimensions of the lighthouse here. Jane, the story of the Royal Victoria that wrecked off Shetland in 1864 during her maiden voyage and the gift of a bell. That was our first fog warning here at the lighthouse long before the foghorn. The Royal Victoria wrecked off Shetland in 1864 with a loss of 13 men. The crew were forced into two open wooden lifeboats. This was January of that year, so you can only imagine the conditions. After six days at sea, the second lifeboat came ashore at nearby Skatness, just a couple of miles north of Sumbra Head, although some on board had died of exposure, including the captain and six of the crew, who were later interred at nearby Dunrossness Kirk. The local people helped the stranded sailors, and after the incident, the owners of the boat, the ferriers, wanted to bestow a gift on the people of Shetland to, to thank them for the kindness that they'd shown their crew. And they wanted this gift to be of a practical nature, so they gifted a bell to Sumbra Head, and, and that was our first fog warning here. And it didn't stay here, though? No, I mean, it was a good idea, but in reality, it was rubbish. It never caught on. <laughs> the problem was trying to find a willing volunteer to ring a bell during prolonged periods of fog. You had no idea how long you were going to be left here for. So in the end, it was decided a better use for the bell was to hang in a kirk belfry, and it was taken to Dunrossness Kirk, where it resides to this day, alongside Captain Leslie and his crew. Val... At Old Scatness, you pioneered a new form of dating for archaeology and in the process discovered that what it was thought was known about when Brocks were built was wrong. A whole range of dating techniques were used at Scatness. A number of these were used for the first time in the ways that you use them here. We used stratigraphy, which is usually used, which is seeing which layer is uh, over which layer, what thing happens in which order. We used carbon-14 dating, which of course is very standard in archaeological techniques now. We also used archaeomagnetic dating, which is a type of dating which relies on when fires have been heated up and the direction of magnetism is reset in the hearth at that point and because magnetism drifts where uh, magnetic north is drifts over time that pinned down a date range that was possible and then the fourth thing that we did was optically stimulated luminescence <laughs> now what was that dating grains of quartz and their last exposure to light 
the reason that it was pioneering is because it had been a method that had been developed for geology and it was used for measuring deep time. Mm. What we didn't know was whether or not it could apply to archaeology in more recent times and that was what we were testing. Um, Oxford University came in, they did that piece of work and what they discovered was that it works perfectly and they got really good results from that but because we were testing that we also had a very detailed set of dates from the site anyway and the fact was that we therefore had a site which was dated beyond any shadow of doubt now when i first came to shetland we thought that broths were built around Roman times and although the Romans never got to Shetland we thought that well it was waves of unrest travelling up the country and that prompted people in the north to start building stone towers to protect themselves mm-hmm. should these Romans arrive they never did but it did mean that when we dated them we discovered that the dates were between 200 and 400 BC which is well before the Romans arrived the most important thing here was not to fall asleep when you were on duty looking after the light. Yeah, the light keepers, night watches were carried out on their own, so it was absolutely essential they kept awake. They stayed at their post. Falling asleep on the job was the most serious offence a light keeper could commit because perhaps you would forget to wind the lens mechanism so the lens may stop turning, the light might show a false character, or worse still, the light might go out altogether. And, and if caught asleep on the job, it would often result in dismissal. In 1959, George Cossiter was the lighthouse keeper and George and his family lived here. Change the conditions and disposing of the toilet <laughs> contents could be unpleasant, to say the least. Well, yeah, so George arrived that year with his wife and his one-year-old daughter and they lived in the cottage to the west of the tower, which is now a self-catering holiday let. And we're just kind of relieved they didn't have TripAdvisor in 1959 because George described it as primitive. He said in 1959 they had no electricity and no running water. They had to carry the water in and out of the house. They had no proper kitchen and you're right, they didn't have a proper bathroom. They had a, an outdoor chemical loo, the contents of which George had to tip down the waste chute, the hole in the boundary wall to the sea, 100 metres below. But George said on a windy night, what went down the chute? You can, you can guess the rest. <laughs> With experience, the keepers could choose their direction and moment very carefully. <laughs> Val, the story of Betty Mowat, She lived in the building that we've restored at the back of the site and she was a knitter in Victorian times and in 1886 she decided that she wanted to go to Lerwick to sell some of her knitting. She hadn't been out of the immediate area before that so what prompted her to go on that particular day we have no idea. But there was a ship or boat that was going up to Lerwick from the area called the Columbine and they agreed to take her. She got on the Columbine with three crew members and set off but at some point one of the crew members fell overboard. So the other two crew members got into their little dinghy and went after him and got him so he was saved that was all fine but when they looked round the columbine which was quite under sail and the wind had filled the sails had gone (laughs) far too far for them to be able to catch her (laughs) so all they could do was come ashore and meanwhile the boat 
drifted and Betty Mowat was on board on her own with nothing more than some biscuits and some water and for nine days she drifted at sea until she hit the coast of Norway <laughs> and when she hit Norway, presumably it was because of her knitting, I don't know, but anyway, she was greeted with great enthusiasm in Norway mm-hmm. and sold her knitting, and then eventually they sent her back to um, the UK. They sent her back via Edinburgh, where she met Queen Victoria before she returned to Shetland. The discovery of the old uh, Skatness was completely out of the blue. It was first discovered in 1975. Nobody had any idea that it was anything other than a natural mound and a road was being put through to a new control tower that had been built at the airport and it cut through a lot of stonework and eventually they called in the then museum curator, the late Tom Henderson, and he came and had a look at it and he realised that it was a broch and he also, thank goodness, realised that he and the local society weren't capable of digging it or dealing with it. So it was covered up and bedded down and the road was slightly diverted and so the broch was saved effectively. What you have found is unique. Buildings like that just don't survive anywhere else. The brochs, yes, and of course we've got Musa, which is amazing and 13 metres high. But for the village around it and these immediate uh, great big roundhouses, we just don't have them surviving like this anywhere else. Kin. Sumberhead has been described as the best place to observe killer whales from the land as they come in close to the shore hunting the seals that you can often see hauled up on the rocks at the base of the cliffs and it's just incredible the variety of wildlife we see here at Sumberhead. Uh, we get the seabirds in the summer months that, that come here for the breeding season so right now we've got puffins, guillemots, razorbills, kittiwakes and then also we're a kind of hot spot for the, the spring and autumn migration as well when you've got birds that are perhaps trying to go south for the winter or head back north in the spring. Sumbra at War, the most famous tale associated with it happened on the 8th of April 1940. And to put this into context, this was the eve of the German invasion of Norway and Denmark. On that night, around 60 planes left northern Germany intent on the destruction of the British home fleet. That's the Royal Navy, who at the time were down in Orkney at Scapa Flow. Sub-Lieutenant George Clifford Evans, he was the man in charge of the radar station here that night and he detected the planes about 100 miles southeast of Sumbra heading towards Orkney and he was able to provide a 25-minute warning of this impending attack. As the planes continued to be tracked, George stepped outside, he looked in the direction of Orkney and he said he witnessed a tremendous firework display in total silence. This was the Scapa Barrage repelling the enemy attack. Eight minutes later, the rumble and roar of those anti-aircraft guns could be heard all the way in Lerwick, 125 miles away. And it was described at the time as the loudest continuous sound ever heard in the British Isles. Thank you both from Sandborg Head Site Manager, Jane Outram, the original archaeologist who was talking to us about Old Scatness Brock and Iron Age Village, Dr Val Turner. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry
On our visit to Shetland, we're now at the 978 hectare Hermanus National Nature Reserve at the northern tip of Unst, the most northerly inhabited of the Shetland Islands and as such the most northerly inhabited part of Britain. This is a, a dramatic cliff-top haven for thousands of breeding seabirds, including fulmers, gulls, shags, gannets, puffins and kittiwakes. I'm joined by Ewan Brown, Operations Officer with Nature Scott and also the manager in charge of the Nature Reserve here at Hermanus and the one at Ness as well. Over the past three and a half hours, you've given us an idea of the beauty and the wildlife of this very special place. Again, the cliffs, the, the huge numbers, particularly of, of gannets. Everybody <laughs> wants to see a puffin. They're absolutely fascinating to watch. Their social interactions many colonies they're fearless and they'll come right up to you literally pulling at your shoelaces an encounter with a puffin never ceases to put a smile on my face in the last three and a half hours we did have one special sighting you never know what you're going to see when you're out on Herman S or indeed elsewhere in Shetland it really is a crossroads for bird migration and we were there sat at Sato, which obviously the main interest is the huge gannet colony there and then I heard a very distinctive call which I knew was a snow bunting and sure enough there was a lovely big fat fluffy snowball of a male snow bunting just sat there en route further north to breeding grounds in, in Iceland or even Greenland possibly. As you were saying I mean, the, the, the gannets are, are the ultimate acrobats of the, of the bird world they're, they're amazing diving the, the long distances they fly the, the, they're overcrowded colonies Every time I visit the colonies of Nos or Hermanes that awesome sight, smells and sounds of tens of thousand gannets clinging to these dramatic sea cliffs the kittiwake is the kittiwake very common here I mean they must be the noisiest of our birds yeah I'm very sad to say that the distinctive cry of the kittiwake is becoming a thing of the past in Shetland why is that do you think they've crashed in number they've declined dramatically in number and it's linked to the lack of sand eels during the breeding season they specialise on these small silvery fish that they feed their young unfortunately the sand eels haven't appeared in recent decades in the 80s it was thought due to overfishing there was a sand eel fishery in Shetland that has now ceased and in fact it's linked to climate change and rising sea temperatures and they're not the only species arctic terns have also suffered and arctic skewers those species also relying on sand eels i remember a number of years ago when siobhan and i were on lewis and being dive bombed by the arctic tern because obviously we we're getting too close to their nesting place presumably they can be fearsome defenders of their nests and they have been known to draw blood they've got very sharp beaks and they will pet you on the head if you get too close to them so uh, the advice is yeah move away if you start getting bombarded by a, an arctic tern yeah. As a, a birder, as an ornithologist uh, and, and somebody who's particularly keen on unusual sightings Most recently a hoopoe which is that exotic species that you associate with warmer climes uh, the Mediterranean and uh, the tropics one of them turned up in, in my home village of Sandwick and they, in fact it's still there visiting people's gardens probing the, the, the lawns for leather jacket grubs When are the big sighting times here on uh, Shetland or on Unst particularly? 
Shetland in general, birds can turn up any time. The peak migration time is the spring, particularly May and June, but even more so in the autumn, September, October, is when you get the big numbers of birds fleeing the freezing north, heading south, but also birds from the east and the west that may be heading in the wrong direction due to either faulty compasses or winds blowing them off course. Mm. So really, that, that they're the times for peak migration. But even in the middle of summer, you can get very exotic birds showing up in Shetland that are obviously lost and, and not finding their breeding grounds. This space development is about to happen here. Is this something that worries the bird life generally? It obviously went through the planning process and we offered our advice on the potential impacts on wildlife and there are planning conditions that are restrict launches during peak incubation period, particularly for guillemots, which we think might be vulnerable, until it's been demonstrated that there are no impacts caused by the launches, which, quite frankly, we don't actually know whether there will be impacts or not until it happens. What limitations have been built into the planning permission? There are currently no launches allowed through the planning conditions during the peak incubation period for guillemots. You're in favour of living more off nature and living off the natural things that are around about us here. The rabbits, for instance, that none of us eat anymore. My view is that we have an uh, abundance of organic free-range protein running around out there that people perhaps don't traditionally eat anymore and yet they're buying battery farmed meat from supermarkets and we're in the midst of a, a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis and also maybe we have lost touch to some extent with the land you know once upon a time people hunted and fished and, and grew on the land and, and, and there's a greater and greater disconnect between people and nature and maybe the reconnection needs to be made. Constant development here, I mean here you have this, this little shelter, well shelter with the wrong word, there's no roof but uh, a wonderful display of, of birds in colour and some basic information about them and some of the cliffs roundabout so, and then you've developed a, a huge development of, of boardwalking that we've just been walking on for the last couple of hours this is the culmination of a big project that has been underway for the last two years. It was an £800,000 project funded by the Natural and Cultural Heritage Fund, which is a European fund, and the Rural Tourism Infrastructure Fund, which is a Scottish Government fund, and that helped build these facilities that we're currently at, which is an information shelter and toilets at the car park, and nearly two kilometres of recycled plastic boardwalk which has now reopened up the center of the reserve towards Hermanes Hill recreating the um, traditional route that the lighthouse staff would have taken to the signaling station out to the Muckleflugger lighthouse. National nature reserves are very much about allowing public access and allowing people to connect with the, the crown jewels of Scotland's wildlife. How many people a year now come to Hermanes? Last year, the record was broken. Over 10,000 people visited Hermaness. We've been monitoring numbers at Hermaness now for at least the last 10 years or so. A few years ago, 6,000 would be a typical annual count. Board research of various kinds has been going on here for a very long time. In the 19th century, Lawrence Edmonston was one of the first people to protect the great skewer, the Bonksy, and had people stationed here to safeguard them and, 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 and pioneer sort of early monitoring work. Then um, the RSPB was stationed here for a while and 
1955 it was declared a national nature reserve which was then the then the the nature conservancy took over and has been carrying out annual a long-term monitoring program ever since and there's a noisy sheep in the background must be telling you something ewan thanks for talking to me no it's a pleasure frank lovely to uh, have you here a further piece of music from some of the finest traditional folk musicians and from Shetland. Morris, what are we going to play this time? This is a tune from the island of Unst, and that's our most northerly island. And there's an area in Unst on the west side there called Valafield, and it's notorious for the trows that live in there. This is a tune that was learnt from the trows. It's called Valafield, it's a jig, and you can hear it, you can imagine the trows dancing to this. Saturday Supplement on Radio Kerry Brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home, Tralee The Saturday Supplement With Frank Lewis On Radio Kerry On the Shetland Islands on Monday, May the 8th Bank Holiday Monday on the Coronation Weekend Throughout the UK on future programmes, we'll use your story or comment on Shetland or any good story on your place. Text 083 300 3300 or 0066 7123 We're on mainland, by far the largest of the Shetland Islands. We're in the Islesbury Community Centre, where just a week earlier was the Shetland Folk Festival. We're dropping in on the, the training session of the Shetland Mandolin Band. I'm joined by members of the band, Gary Peterson, one of the leading mandolin players on Shetland, and Jenny Henry, the driving force behind the band, and the, the Shetland Folk Festival, a musician. Jenny, how the Shetland Mandolin Band started? I was encouraged to start teaching the mandolin about eight years ago, eight or nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So I did. I don't know that I'm a music teacher, but I can play a bit, and I have the patience to sit with people and help them. So, and then I realised there wasn't anywhere really that people could 
play the mandolin because if you're in a session with fiddles or accordions the mandolin gets a bit drowned out and we'd kind of joked over the years it would be good to get a mandolin orchestra going but when I had a few pupils that were coming up and managing to play a few tunes I messaged a few people that I knew including Gary here and a lot of other players and just decided we would see have a band night and see how it went and it's really gone on for there so that was in November 2015 we started so you're on the go for the last seven eight years yeah yeah and in the background there by the way the band is rehearsing away so that's that's what you're hearing Gary Peterson one of the leading mandolin players in Shetland you have a long history a long background in mandolin music yeah well my, my grandfather played the mandolin and my father played the mandolin it was always mandolins in the house so I, I, had, I had to learn it I suppose I've been playing it since I was in primary school why mandolin do you know where did all I, that come from I don't know I, I, I think well my father sailed I think it's an easy thing to carry when you're sailing deep sea and my grandfather was in the Royal Navy. He maybe took on the Royal Navy ships. I don't know. It's easy instrument to carry around. A lot easier than a guitar. Although they both played guitar as well. Yeah. Back there, I counted, I think, a dozen mandolins. And there were three or four guitars. And there was a piano player as well. And it was fairly evenly split, male, female. Maybe they might play something for us. Is there something in particular that uh, um, you have Well, in? we could try something. We're practising at the moment for... We have a concert coming up in June with a Norwegian mandolin orchestra that are coming over to visit. experience Gary of the mandolin band that 2017 we recorded a CD and that, that was a good experience because it was a first for a lot of the band the whole process of recording an album was a, a new thing to them the last day of the Shetland Folk Festival it's just a great experience a lot of the players in our band are just they haven't really got much musical experience and they're because we accept beginners and everything and they can try and play what they can so them just sitting on a stage and playing in front of it and then the I think the novelty of the band is still there. I know the first year we played, it was a really good experience because nobody in Shetland had heard that. At that point, we had about 30 players and nobody had heard that many mandolins playing before. The folk festival on the whole is really good. You're hearing music for you around the world and you're passing on your music. I played at the very first festival and I've, been, I've only missed one of the 41. It's just meeting some amazing musicians and having tunes with them and... And, and just having drums with them and just having a great time with them and from all over the world and I mean we met many great Irish musicians have been here in the past and had tunes with them all it's great On May the 6th we had a, a memorable day 
on Settler Island, guided by fiddle player Morris Henderson. Jenny, fiddle music was what was traditionally played in Shetland. Was the reason for that, that Shetlanders were, were fishermen or involved in other seagoing activities? It was, it was easy to bring a, a fiddle with you, I suppose? I would imagine so. Seafaring was a huge thing in, the, in Shetland. In times gone past, a huge quantity of men went to sea in some capacity or other. And the music's been around for a long, long time, but the yeah, fiddle music, I don't know when it all started, but it's been on the go. And they, they played for... Uh, when they had dances and stuff, it was usually a lone fiddler that played it. The severity of life in a lot of the Western Islands particularly, and things you didn't do, music you didn't play, dancing that you didn't do, and the good book that you read and so on. It wasn't like that here. I think there are stories about the fiddle being the devil's instrument and the, the <laughs> ministers wouldn't allow you to play the fiddle. So in the past, yeah, many, many hundreds of years ago, that there are stories about that. It was always known as the devil's instrument. And, uh, I see. So that was kind of hidden. <laughs> so did, did the mandolin escape that definition? I think, then? yeah, we, we've always been on the good side. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the angels. And we're the, the angels, we're the angels, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jenny, how, how would you describe the traditional or folk music scene on Shetland now? Oh, it's pretty vibrant. There's a lot of young players, especially young fiddle players, but there's a good few young mandolin players, banjo players, guitarists, from a lot of young bands. Something we take for granted up yeah. here is because there, there's so many people play, and we only notice that it's when you go somewhere else where nobody plays, you suddenly realise how lucky we are up here. We should finish with another piece of mandolin music. What, what, what would you, you suggest? We'll play an Irish tune followed by a Finnish tune. <laughs> supplement on Radio Kerry brought to you in association with Sean Lynch and John O'Reilly Hogan's Funeral Home Tralee The Saturday Supplement with Frank Lewis on Radio Kerry On Shetland now on Monday May the 8th Coronation Week and Bank Holiday Weekend in the United Kingdom at the Old Morans, a, a very effectively modernised Airbnb where we stayed for the, our two weeks on Shetland. Now joined by the owners, GP Jacqueline Gray and her husband, marine engineer Brian Gray. Brian, you're working in the fishing industry. I work on a, one of the large pelagic fishing boats. So it's midwater trawl for mackerel and herring. And we fish normally January, start of the year, and then uh, again in the Easter 
and then the herring in August. We may travel as far south as uh, maybe a hundred miles off the west coast of Ireland. That's normally the blue white we fish down there, and then um, the mackerel is normally up around Shetland. The market rings you up and says they need fish, and you set off and go and hunt it down. And so you know when you're going out what what you're looking it's for. It's usually then. quite short notice, within a few days or a week. Mm. And typically, yeah. how long would you go away for? It's normally uh, four to five weeks. In that four or five weeks, we'll maybe have a land in every five days, maybe three days fishing, and then it'll be a day or two steaming back to port, and then there'll be three days landing. But life on board ship now is quite palatial compared to what one yeah, heard it's, about it's, before. It's very comfortable. Everybody's got their own cabins and um, Sky TV, and the food's very good. It's obviously January. It can be pretty terrible weather. It's not for everybody, but I quite enjoy it. Jacqueline, working as a, as a GP, a family doctor on Shetland. In the practice that I've been working at mainly in Lerwick, the main town, the days are probably fairly similar to mainland GPs. Mm-hmm. They're around about a 10-hour day. In Lerwick, quite an urban practice. Population of 9,000. I spent some time working up in Unst, one of the outer isles, mm-hmm. and during my time there have done some days as single hand at GP with the support of district nurses and, and a great team around you but you're, you're there as the, as the single GP so that's a great contrast to be able to Are you likely to be undertaking things that would normally be done on hospital? It depends on which part of Shetland you're working in so in Larwick we have, we have the benefit of having the, the hospital right directly across the road and there's a, an excellent team who work there so we would be referring patients into the hospital there but working out with the Lerwick in the more remote practices you were, you do have to have in mind that there may be all sorts of things. Like you, what? You might have to attend a, a road traffic accident. But so you wouldn't have to operate on somebody's appendix or anything like that? No. That, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a really unfortunate thing to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. In the, in the, I mean, in that sort of situation, if somebody was acutely unwell, then there would, you would be organising possibly helicopter transfer. But Jacqueline, in Kerry, tourism is the lifeblood of the economy. Running an Airbnb on Shetland? It's been a really enjoyable experience. It's offered the opportunity to meet a whole host of folk from all over the world. Very contrasting to medicine. We've had tourists come in and we've been surprised at how tourists have continued to come throughout the winter. Um, I think all Shetlanders are always amazed that anybody would want to come near the place in the winter. Brian, your, your life on Shetland, you, you lived in London, Edinburgh and Plymouth. Shetland's just a, a slower pace of life. You don't have the problems of traffic. It was fine to move back home again and you know more people and family was here, so... How long have you been away for? I went to sea when I was 16 and studied in Glasgow and then I met Jacqueline and we, I went on and lived in Edinburgh for a few years, so we moved back here when we were about 32. So you've been away for 16 years then? Yeah. Maybe really all your adult life? We are coming back and forth a lot. Mainly work we went away for I got a job down in Plymouth, so I was down there for three years. Mm. And Jacqueline retrained in London, so that's why we are there. So mm. we always 
kept a strong connection to Shetland. Mm. The social life is different. There's there's not the restaurants and the entertainment on hand that you get down in a major city, but mm -hmm. it's different up here. It's more close-knit. You go and maybe over to a neighbour at the weekends and that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. There's always some sort of entertainment. There's mm -hmm. been the Folk Festival the last few weeks and um, the tall ships coming in the summer. We loved living in all the cities that we lived in, Edinburgh and London and Plymouth, and they offered entirely different experiences. But there's just... We always spoke about, speak about Shetland as a bit of a magnet and everybody from here is in a way pulled back to it for whatever yes. reason. And there's just a, a, a warmth about the place that you dinna get in cities. There's a great shortage of housing in Shetland, Brian. You have land. Why don't you build? There's not a lot of property development that goes on in Shetland unless you own a building company. I think mainly it's the the price of the materials and normally if you build a house it's probably in negative equity for a few years. So you're saying that I think the example you gave me the other day that it could cost you a quarter of a million to build a house and the best price you might get for it would be 200,000. Yeah that's just an example it might be might be the case. So that sounds crazy. I mean I mean with the heavy demand for housing why is that? I don't know if the, we, we have to pay a premium for materials up here. It adds to the cost of everything. And uh, there's also a bit of a shortage of, of labour, so I, I'm not... I wouldn't say we're paying more for labour, but um, the trades is quite expensive, yeah. unless you own the company that's employing yeah. them. Jacqueline, one of the impressions we have from the distance is that everybody is making a fortune out of oil up here. Has oil... Are you conscious of a way in which oil has changed life for you or life in Shetland? To be quite honest, it's how I've always known it. So it's since, since what, the mid-70s? Yeah, so I was born in late 70s and, and it's just how it's been. And I, I suppose as I as I get older and I see m maybe the, the effects of oil in a way drifting away slowly... Well, the whole road development, the whole pier development, the development of the ferries all presumably have been profoundly affected by the oil money that has come in here. Uh, yeah, and I think Shetland would be a very different place to live in had it not been for the oil. When oil came, they set up the Charitable Trust, so it's quite a big trust now. I think it's worth £400 million or something at the moment. And uh, that has helped Shetland develop its infrastructure, especially the, the leisure centres, so most of the main schools have a sports complex next door that's for public use, but schools also use it. Shetland is within 200 miles of Scotland and 200 miles of Norway. Bergen is the closest railway station. It's on the direct line between Russia and America. All of the place names have a Viking origin. Scottish independence, Brexit, the EU. Shetland overwhelmingly rejected Brexit at the time. The fishermen were uh, quite positive about what we might get out of Brexit. Are you in favour of Scottish independence or do you see your alignment more with Norway? I would like a period of calm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the last 10, 15 years has been quite tiring politically. I think uh, just a little bit of calm for 10 years and see what happens, yeah. see how it all pans yeah. out. Yeah. The Norwegians have a good deal, I think.
freedom of movement and they're in the customs union. So kind of something similar to the arrangement that the, the Norwegians had? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think we should be... We should give up our fishing rights again. That will be a good thing mm. to have... Uh, to be able to, we've got a strong position to negotiate from, so it would be a shame to hand that back again. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. All Moorings is, is a very comfortable adapting of the old craft house. Y- your heating system, air to air, a fan outside, and two air conditioners inside. The cost, the payback time, the, the saving on your electricity bill? Yeah, well, I think it's probably paid for itself in three years. It cut your electricity bill in two. Jacqueline, medicine and running an Airbnb business and looking after two very young sons and a husband, but he's missing a lot of the time. I have recently um, changed my kind of working pattern so that I have a lot more flexibility to allow for Brian's unpredictability. But certainly there's been lots of um, encouragement for me to be able to work as, as flexibly as I can. Brian, marine engineering... Airbnb, two young sons and a wife. We muddle in. My this mother's up in aunt, so she's on hand for emergencies. And yeah. we have good friends that helps us out with the kids if, if I'm away and Jacqueline needs to work. Jacqueline and Brian Gray, thanks for talking to me. Every day of our two weeks on Shetland were filled with endlessly interesting and enjoyable experiences. Great cliffs, huge sea panoramas, friendly people all made possible by, by Logan Air, who flew us here and home, and promote Shetland, who got us a place to stay. Shetland.org slash sign up for their monthly newsletter, and with Shetland Immunity, suggested where to go and who to talk to, and so many individuals who went out of their way to help, and very especially our neighbours, our landlords, on the very comfortably restored and fitted out old Moorins craft house, who provided their hen's eggs, printed pages day after day, brought the biggest and most succulent mussels, provided maps and guides and told us about family life on Shetland, Jacqueline and, and Brian Gray and their young sons Sonny and Isaac. On today's programme, Siobhan Lewis travelled all those long days looking after the recording uh, and reminding me when necessary and post-production Colette Foley from me, Frank Lewis, until the last Saturday of next month. On the centenary of his birth, we'll hear the stories and music of Johnny Leary from family and neighbours in his native Slivlokra. Until then, live life fully outdoors in our marvellous place. Thanks for your company. Francis Jones will be with you after the news. And now at the end of our very special two weeks on the Shetland Islands, Morris, what are we going to play this time? A kind of a medley of tunes here. The first one is called Doon de Ruth, and that's uh, an old tune from Unst, and it was used for spinning, like it's in the spinning mill, spinning wheel. It, uh, it's kind of got a rhythm that you can recognise from that. And actually, Ewan, who's playing guitar here, is, we got the tune from his grandfather, who actually made spinning wheels. And he could play the fiddle and spin the yarn at the same time. And then we followed that up with a tune called the Papa Stewart Sword Dance, and uh, John, our bass player here, is actually a sword dancer himself in his tour with the group. It's an old dance. It's been la- it was first documented down in 1700, so it predates that from the island of Papa Stewart. A great tune. We're kind of played a bit more up-tempo mm-hmm. as they would for the dance, and then we're going to follow it with a wild 
Greenland whaling tune from that day's a sail, and that's called the Yaki Dragon. Off you go. 